You ever get discouraged? This song is for you. Listen. Sometimes I feel discouraged and I think my life is in vain. I'm tempted then to murmur and of my lot complain. But when I think of Jesus, I know that he's done for me. Then I cry rock of ages hide thou me oh rock of ages hide thou me no other dark veil I wander far far from thee then I cry rock of ages hide thou me oh what a friend is ye for my soul so tender true and gracious I'm safe in his control my help in time of danger my strong defense is he then I cry rock of ages hide thou me oh rock of ages hide thou me no When life's dark pale, I wander far, far from thee. Then I cry, rock of ages, hide thou me. Brother Bradshaw. Bless God. Enjoy that. Roger's getting his voice back. You know, had a lot of trouble with his voice over the last few months. And um, one thing about his voice, it comes back. I've never had one to come in the first place. <laughs> he sing anything. First John, chapter 5, 16 through 21. Now, that title that Roger gave you is the one that I gave you for affirmations, intercessory prayer, and the believer's position. That's what that was all about. When I started down this road with this message, my intent was to have one message that would cover 16 through 21, and that would be our final message from this epistle of 1 John that we've been preaching through. However, the longer that I worked on it, the longer it got. And I thought, well, if I preach this whole thing 
this coming Sunday, y'all might want to have a recall vote because it was way too long. So we're going to address just a portion of it today, and then we're going to pick up with it some next week and then continue through the end of the chapter. First John chapter 5, verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come, and has given us this understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we love your word and we love every syllable of it. Thank you, Lord, for preserving it for our instruction. Teaching us how to live. Teaching us how not to live. Directing us, Lord, in doing those things that are pleasing in your sight. Guarding us from those things that are not. We love you, Master. We thank you for your word. We are grateful, Lord, for this privilege of grace to be here today in this place to study your word together. Lord, always it's got to be all of thee, none of me. For your glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You know, there's some things we don't know about the scripture. We can study and study and study, and there's always some things that are not known. And I was thinking about this song, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. If you notice, that song, the writer is anonymous. The one who put it to music is anonymous. How in the world could we ever imagine the number of unsung heroes of the faith that have rolled across the pages of, of, of life on the planet and now in heaven? And we're standing on those shoulders of those. That guy or lady knew what it was like to walk close with the Lord. And they, not living now on planet Earth, but in glory, are ministering to us as we sing those lines together. This passage today is been a challenge. Last week, we studied what John had to say, Apostle John, what he had written about our confidence, the believer's confidence in prayer. We have confidence in prayer. If we know we're born of God, those that are born of God, we have confidence in prayer. Specifically, he said that when we pray according to the will of God, we know that we have the petitions that we ask him of. If we pray according to his will, it's a given. We're going to have what we ask him for. It may be an immediate revealed answer. It may be later on. But it's coming because the text there says we have. When we pray according to his will, we have. That means we have it now. And the Lord will deliver it in his pleasure for his eternal purposes in our lives that are working out right now. And that's what we need to remember that God is working out his eternal purpose in our lives now as we're moved towards eternity with him. He hears us when we pray according to his will. We have the petitions that we ask of him. Now, based on the assurances we have of our personal praying before the Father when we pray according to the will, we have that same assurance when it comes down to the issue of intercessory prayer. When we pray one for the other, when we pray one for the other according to the will of God, the word of God says we have what we ask for. We pray according to his will. And of course, that has that definite aspect there, according to his will. You might pray, well, I wish that 
neighbor next door would move somewhere else. It might not be the will of God for him to move somewhere else. It might be the will of God for you to go talk to him about the Lord. I don't know. But we pray according to the will of God. We have what we have asked for in intercessory prayer. And so when we as believers in Christ love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that agape love working in us towards each other, towards our siblings in Jesus, it's going to result in our being concerned for their welfare, spiritual and otherwise. It's just part of genuine love, to be concerned for their spiritual welfare and material welfare and health welfare or whatever it is. And that's going to result, if the loving is real, it's going to result in our praying for them, lifting them up before the Lord in prayer, asking the Father to meet his needs. Now having said that, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter was speaking, writing of some of Paul's writings. He said, as also in all his epistles, meaning Paul's, as also in all of Paul's epistles, speaking of them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are learned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. But the focus I'm going to make here, he said about Paul's writing, some of those things Paul has written are hard to understand. And ladies and gentlemen, I believe this, if Paul read this section of scriptures that John has written, he'd say, boy, John writes things that are hard to understand too. And this is one of those texts there. First of all, let's look at verse 16. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. John's instruction for praying for a sibling in Jesus, a brother and sister in Christ, his instruction for our praying for them. If any man see his brother sin of sin or his sister sin of sin, which is not unto death, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him a life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, you probably have heard the phrase used, and, or maybe you've used it yourself, to talk about the elephant in the room. You know, there's this issue that's just not being discussed, okay? Well, this verse is kind of like that because it, it's about intercessory prayer, but there's an elephant, I don't mean any disrespect to this, there's an elephant in this verse. It gets the attention first because when people look at this verse, the first thing they think about and look about and begin to examine is not the aspect of intercessory prayer, but what is this in this verse about death or not unto death, sin? Those two classifications. What is that about? Sin not unto death, sin unto death. And boy, there is no small about small amount of debate in the commentaries. <laughs> about this. You can read and read and read and everybody's got a position on it. Some say it's, specific, it's a specific sin that John is talking about. He's talking about a specific thing that this person did which is a sin unto death. And because they didn't sin that specific sin it wasn't a sin unto death. In the Old Testament the Mosaic Law had a list, has a list of things that are considered capital offenses that were punishable by death. But it also has a list of things that are not capital offenses, sins committed ignorantly, unwittingly, whatever, that could be cleansed by sacrifice of something then, and of course later, the Lord Jesus. Clement of Alexandra and Origen and Tertullian all felt that you could distinguish between, the distinction could be made between sins that are forgiven and sins are not unto death and sins that are unto death. They, they all agreed there is a distinction that could be made. The only one of the three that made a list was Tertullian, and he later made a list of what he felt that sins unto death were. And all this worked together down through the years, you know how things go, uh, ultimately developed into the Catholic castration of venial and mortal sins. Venial and mortal sins. So here we are, a mortal sin will be a sin unto death. Venial sin is something that been, can be forgiven by X, Y, and Z. Now all of that 
has nothing to do with what John is writing. Nothing at all. And there's nothing in Scripture to substantiate a listing of sins like that either, as this is particularly used then. And, and the other thing is this. When, you know, the key thing about reading the Word of God for ourselves or trying to interpret the law of God to teach it and preach it, we must never add to. And we must never take away. We must go right down the line of Scripture and preach only or teach only what is there. And so these people, and thinking, well, these are the specific sins, mortal sins and venial sins or whatever, they're adding to. John doesn't say anything about any specific sin. He just says when we see a brother or sister in Christ sinning a sin. That's all he says to about it. But then there are others say, well, no, it's not a specific sin, but it's, it's this particularly, it's this sin of apostasy. And we say, well, now that may have some merit. Sin of apostasy. What does that mean? That means that one that had begun or was going along as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ all of a sudden rejects Christ and renounces the Christian faith. You know what? That person had never been born of God. Once a person has been born of God, born again, as we say in John chapter 3, the word is, again, is anathos, anathen, born from above. Once a person has been born from above and personally entered into a relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son, they are never going to go back. Because the Holy Spirit comes into their lives, bears witness with them that they are the children of God. And the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. He's always there. So they weren't genuine believers, not genuinely saved in the first place. Others say, well, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Which is something that the Pharisees did in total rejection of the personal work of Christ, didn't they? Matthew chapter 12, 31, 32 Jesus is speaking, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Well, you can nail it. That would be a sin unto death, would it not? That would be a sin unto death. But again, John does not mention specific sins. We don't know if he's talking about a sin or sins, right? We just say, no, what John said under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God, when we see a brother or sister sinning a sin that is not unto death or is unto death, whatever. Now, first of all, remember that the Word of God is infallible. And secondly, remember your pastor's not, okay? okay? Everything I say, everything I say in this pulpit, in the hallways, counseling, in the hospitals, bedsides, or whatever, hear me. But then carefully search the scriptures to see if it's so. And if it's not so, minister to all of us by coming to your pastor and saying, Hey, preacher, <laughs> you're off track here. Look at the word. Because what is our goal together as a church family? It's to grow in the nurture and admission of the word of God as it is written with no fallops, with no misunderstanding of what God has to say for us. So, this is what I believe the text states, okay? What I believe. I believe that the phrase, seeth his brother, when you seeth a brother or sister, I believe that phrase drives the discussion. That's it. It's right there. We could look at the other words, but that right there is a key. When you seeth a brother sin a sin. 
In the context of this epistle, John has been talking about believers loving his brother. Today we're talking about intercessory prayer as brothers and sisters, loving our brothers and sisters and interceding for them before God the Father. That's our subject today. And John talks about brothers loving brothers. For example, 1 John 2, 9 through 10. I'm going to go back to some of the view of the verses that we study together. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother, he's in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. 1 John 3, 17, whoso, <clears throat> whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So there's the love of the brother that has a need and our heart responds to that need. And if it doesn't, we have no interest in it whatsoever. What does that say? It says more about us and the absence of the love of God in us in Christ Jesus than it does about the brother who has the need for whatever reason. 1 John 4, 20 and 21, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. He that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he have not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. And we spent a lot of time talking about that, didn't we? That love of God in us, that agape love that comes in. It wasn't part of creation. It comes in at the new birth. That agape love in us, loving God and loving those whom are begotten of God as we have been begotten of God. So when John uses the term brother, he's talking about a brother in Christ. And you know, there are some still say, well, yeah, John most of the time is talking about a brother in Christ. But in this particular instance, he's just using that term brother to talk about fellow countrymen, Jews, you know, of the same race or tribe or whatever, or in the neighborhood, brothers. You know, you're out and about, and someone says, hey, brother, I've never seen him before. He hasn't seen me before. Hey, brother, you know, whatever. The motorcycle clubs all refer to each other as brother. <laughs> there are some Christian motorcycle clubs. Why would they say that? Why would they say he's using that term in a broader sense now? Well, they have a good basis that some of them would say. I would think they would say these a couple of things. And I would say, well, you're right in that regard. What would they say? Well, he's not speaking of a brother in Jesus because a true Christian cannot fall into apostasy. Or a true Christian will not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Those are true statements. And they're saying, well, this couldn't be a brother because a, a, a true brother wouldn't do either of those things. And they're right. A true brother born of God would not do those two things. Both those statements are true. But in saying them, they're assuming that John's speaking of those things and he mentioned neither of them. He didn't mention that. He said it's sin. So they're reading into the scripture. And I'm speaking to the condemnation. I don't want to do this either. I don't want to read into the scripture. I want to take it as it is. So they're reading into the scripture, assuming that's what John is talking about when he talks about a sin and a death. It's apostasy, or blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We know from the word of God through the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ that blasphemy in the Holy Spirit is death. Now and eternally, death. But the Pharisees, <laughs> see, different. Right? Well, John was speaking of a defection into sin, but he was speaking of a brother or a sister in that defection.
I'm not talking about an affection of falling away from Christ. I'm talking about an affection from the standard which God intends for him or her to walk in. So John talked about a brother. And, 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 and you know, if, if, as they suggested, that group that I just mentioned, if it were true that after John's using this brother term for believers in Jesus, fellow believers, all through the epistle, and other verses, of course, in the Word of God that we can point to, but through his writing alone to these first century believers, and so he's been using the term brother for a fellow believer, and all of a sudden now he uses the term brother for a fellow Jew that's yet unsaved, that would be very confusing to his first century readers, and it certainly would be to me. So John is speaking about a brother or sister in Christ Jesus that sins a sin, one of two different categories. You know something really I'd leave to, and I think there have been a couple of incidents here uh, in John's writings. For those believers whom, with whom he was well acquainted, and they were well acquainted with him, I believe they knew the terms he was using they do exactly what John was talking about, where we have to dig a little bit for it to come to the same knowledge. And another thing to keep in mind is this. We look at these words, sometimes difficult and hard to understand. John and these other writers of Scripture were writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit of God. Holy men of old carried along. And so the words are important, and the order of the words is important. The verbs are important. The form of the verbs is important. This is the way that God has given it to us. So what can we know from Scripture about a brother falling into sin? What can we know? There are some things we can know from Scripture. First John 1.8 says something that we need to remember because John definitely did not teach a brother cannot sin. A true Christian. He didn't teach that a true Christian cannot sin. He said, 1 John 1, 8, if we say they have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and truth is not in us. And then in 2, 1, he said, if you do sin, I'm writing to you so you won't, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is also the perpetuation for our sin. John did teach, though, that a true believer would not continue to persist in sin as a lifestyle. A true believer will not continue to persist in sin as a pattern of their life. First John 3, 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his, sin remaineth in, his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. 5.18 of John, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now, you know from our study of 1 John and these verb forms, you know that these are verb forms are present tense active, meaning continuing action. John is not teaching contrary to himself what he said in 1 John 1.8. No, he's saying, if you do sin, we have an advocate. But over here he's saying, you won't continue in sin. You won't. True believers don't continue in under, unrepented sin. But having said that, in verse 18, John made it real clear about sin. He said, all unrighteousness is sin. All unrighteousness. All is the Greek word pos. means every, every aspect of it. Every detail of unrighteousness is sin. There's no Nothing left out. Unrighteousness is a word, a decay. It means failure to adhere to a moral principle or standard or law, which, of course, is the standard, the commands, the law of God. Harmatia, the word sin, means to miss the mark. What's the mark? The standard of God, the righteousness of God. Harmatia is to miss that, like an archer shooting, but he misses the target. Now, when he, John says the term sin of sin, they're both forms of that word. But sin, the first one, sin, a sin, sin, the first one is a verb form of the same word, harmatia, and then 
sin that he commits is the noun form, sin of sin, verb form, noun form of the same word. And what is that? Sin. That definition of harmatia says it's a transgression, something forbidden, or ignores something required by God's law or character, whether in thought, feeling, speech, or action. That's pretty pervasive, isn't it? Wow. That makes me want to keep my mouth shut a lot, Phil. <laughs> makes me want to guard my eyes, guard my feelings. Because we've talked about unhindered, unhindered fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father and sin that grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. Thoughts, feelings, speech, or actions. John certainly removes the gray matter about what sin is. We have a tendency to categorize sins. Big sins, little sins, middle-sized sins. Not as bad as that. Not as good as this. No. All unrighteousness, John says, is sin. It includes our acts, our thoughts, our feelings, our speech, any of that that violates God's righteous standard. Jesus gave an example of that. There's a bunch of examples of it in the scripture. Matthew 5, 28, Jesus speaking, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh, that's action, on a woman to lust after her, that's feeling. After hath committed adultery with her in his heart, those are thoughts. There's the three forms right there. Thoughts, actions, feelings. In that verse. All unrighteousness, thoughts, acts, feeling, was sin. When I was studying this, this thought <laughs> came to my mind. Praise God that lust is not a sin unto death. Because if it was, there'd be a real shortage of men on this planet. Right? Confession's good for the soul, man. I remember I was sitting in a Bible class at Crystal College, <clears throat> my first year there. And this professor, <clears throat> a godly guy, man, his classes were intense examination of the Word of God, and those exams were extraordinarily challenging. But those classes were like worship experiences. Man. And he was talking, whatever it was, that he got down to this denying ourselves and taking up the cross and talking about the crucifixion of the flesh and, you know, went on and on and on about denying the flesh in us that, that God might have full liberty with us. Da -da -da -da. And he got said, gentlemen, it's like you're standing down here on the street corner waiting for the light to change and a, <clears throat> a completely nude woman walks by and you don't even turn your head. And this guy across the aisle leaned over and he says, Bratcher, that's dead, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's dead. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for all men. It's a challenge for ladies. But thoughts, feelings, words, actions. And you know something? Hear me kindly in this. I believe the ladies that dress so provocatively, that promote lust, are just as guilty as the men whose looks they covet. I believe they're just as guilty. There's a whole downgrade of the moral culture from what it used to be. I saw a post on Facebook, and I'll get off this in a moment. Facebook last week, wherever his Facebook's still up. And here's a group of pretty girls in their bathing suits of like 1955 or 60, you know, whatever. And then the caption was, little did they know that the bathing suits of their generation would be the prom dresses of the future. You know what I believe, ladies and gentlemen? I believe the devil is making a fool out of our young people and our older people. It's not just the young people. 
profaning something that God made and intended to be beautiful in every aspect. Well, one thing for certain about all that, isn't it? It's sure clear we need a Savior. All of us have sinned. All of us have come short of the glory of God. All of us need a Savior. And we must have a Savior to escape the decadence that Satan has for us in this life and have the assurance of glory in the next life. Let's take a closer look at verse 18. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one doesn't touch him. Whosoever, that's the same word pos, it's translated all in another place. It's translated here, this place, pos, P-A-S, all. It means everyone considered individually. Every individual born of God sinneth not. In other words, it doesn't continue in sin. Of course, the not there is the negation. Sinneth not. He doesn't do that. Which means, of course, they don't continue to persist in sin. But according to the word of God, those that continue to persist in sin with an unchanged life are lost. 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, but whosoever sinneth, whoever continues in sin, hath not seen him, neither known him. Now, the middle phrase. Look at the middle phrase of that verse. He, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Okay? And there's considerable debate about this verse. The Codex, Codex Sinaiticus, which is a 4th century uh, manuscript of the Greek Bible, keep in mind that it was written in hand. Okay, written in hand. But it's a 4th century copy of the Greek Bible, and it's the earliest complete New Testament copy that we have, okay? It, along with most of the other Greek manuscripts, have that phrase exactly as is given to us in the King James Version, exactly as it is right here. He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Other manuscripts have it differently. And that's one of them, one example is reflecting the New American Standard Bible. And the verse says, but he, capital H, he who was born of God keepeth him. So we got he that is begotten of God keepeth himself. Or we've got, but he who was born of God keepeth him. So the question becomes then, who's keeping who? Right? Who's keeping who? By the way, you know, and I'll make, uh, maybe next week I'll bring a, give you a handout with a picture of it. The, the Greek manuscripts were written in, in what they call scripto, uh, scripto continua, okay? And what that means, S-C-R-I-P-T-O-C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A, scripto continua. And what that means, Greek letter, Greek letter, Greek letter, Greek letter, no spaces, no punctuation, nothing like we have today. And so you can imagine and particularly when you see one of those copies, one of those that are written on papyrus, you know, or whatever, you can see how easy it could be for a copyist to make an error. And maybe this is what happened here in other places, I don't know. Only by the grace of God we got what we have, anyway. But the other Greek manuscripts agree in one, and they have it. But he, meaning Jesus, who was born of God, keepeth him, meaning the child of God. King James says, he who was born of God, meaning us, keepeth ourselves. There's a vast difference there. Now, I want you to notice the, the difference in the, the spelling of these two pronouns, okay? The pronoun him, the Greek word is A-U-T-O-N. Him, A-U-T-O-N. Himself is H-E-A-U-T-O-N. Just two letters. Two letters in the front. Changes from him to himself. Okay? So, maybe it's a copyist error. I don't know. That might be the case here. To have a way of knowing. 
However, the context, I believe, confirms the King James translation of this verse. I don't give you my reasons for that. He that is begotten of God keepeth himself. First of all, the very first phrase in that verse, look at it. He, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. That's that self-government, right? He's not continuing in sin. So that very first phrase obviously exposes there's some self-discipline involved in keeping ourselves from sin, right? Self-discipline. Not sinning. Not going to continue to sin. So, secondly, the phrase, he that is begotten of God, is never used as a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's used, this would be the only place in Scripture that I can find, I think you'll find the same. The only place in Scripture that it would be used of a title if that was indeed the case. It is used as a descriptive term of the Lord Jesus Christ as it is of us, born of God. He was born of God, so to speak. Burdens, Holy Spirit on the Virgin, Holy Spirit on our hearts, begotten of God, born from above, that sort of thing. But this is the only place it would be used as a title. I don't believe that's what's happening here. And plus, there's a lot of scriptures for us to look at that speak of us as believers governing our behavior, disciplining ourselves, keeping ourselves, so to speak. 1 John 3, 3, in this epistle, every man that hath his hope in his hand. What hope? <laughs> the resurrection, the rapture coming. Every man that hath his hope in himself purifieth himself. Self-discipline involved, isn't it? even as he is pure. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lust, Paul says to Timothy, but follow, flee, but follow, righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and them that call upon the Lord, out of a pure heart. So what's that speaking of? Timothy, govern yourself, discipline yourself, keep yourself. James 1.27, pure religion, undefiled before God, and the Father's is visit the fatherless, widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Self-discipline for the believer. In the last verse in this chapter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5, 3 is one of four times in this epistle that John has written about the believer keeping the commandments of God. There's a lot of self-discipline involved in that, isn't it? This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So contextually, in this epistle, and beyond this epistle, the other scriptures, there is much said about a believer keeping themselves in the will and in the way of God. Now having said that, certainly, it goes without saying from the testimony of Scripture we all know well that the children of God are kept by the power of God. That's true. John 10, 28. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John 10, 29. My Father which gave them to me is greater than <clears throat> all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So we've got the Lord's hand, the Father's hand, kind of like a bilateral grip on the children of God. We're not going anywhere. We are kept by the power of God. And that's what 1 John 1, Peter 1, 1.5 says. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation to be revealed at the last time. So we're kept by the power of God. But the context here, I believe, drives us to the conclusion that John is talking about a believer keeping himself. Now the devil doesn't touch him. Why? Because we're in the hand of God. We're in the hand of the Savior. We can't be touched. But it's talking about the believer keeping himself. That last phrase there, that wicked one touches him not. Touches, it means to grasp and to hold and affect negatively. To grasp and hold and affect negatively. And then the negation, not. Not going to happen to the believer. Satan cannot grasp us, hold us, and affect us negatively because we're kept by the power of God. What does that mean? 
That means that a genuine born of God believer can't be demon possessed. We can be influenced. We can be enticed. First John, uh, James 1.14, uh, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. All Satan can do is dangle the bait. And our flesh is willing. <laughs> our flesh is willing. But a Satan cannot make a child of God do anything. A child of God can be enticed and fall away into sin of his own lust. We used to have a, an annual prayer vigil at Hideaway Church. So we fill up a 24-hour time frame with a chart. People come, they could take 15 or 30 minutes or whatever, and they'd fill up, we'd pray for 24 hours straight, and that's their prayer deal. Of course, here's Hideaway Church, and there's the middle lake, and there's the back lake, and there's the spillway running around to the church going into the back lake. And so interestingly, those 3 and 4, 330 to 4.30 spots weren't really that popular, and so I would go down... You know, and everybody filled in their name. I'd fill in my name where there wasn't anyone, and I was down there that particular time, 3.30, 4.30, whatever it was, praying in the auditorium there. And I stayed till daylight. And daylight came, and I walked down to the spillway and it, where the middle lake feeds into the back lake, and there's an apron there. Ray, you're familiar with this. And you can stand on an apron, even in a suit, and fish. That wasn't a suit. It was in casual clothes. But I cast a lure out there, an old topwater lure, and bam, like that. And I reeled in about a five-pound bass, unhooked him, looked him over, and that old rascal had scars all over his mouth. There's no telling how many times he had been caught. And so I put him back down in the water there and let loose of him. That old rascal just sat there. It didn't move, like he's looking me over. He's probably thinking, you know, I've been here and done this before. This is not my first rodeo, right? you know, preacher, whatever. And then he just turned and swam casually away. That bass had been caught so many times. It's all over his mouth. The witness of it, the testimony of it. But you know what? He still took the bait. That's how it is. Satan's always throwing the bait. We always have to watch out to not take the bait because of the lust of the flesh. Well, what can we say about this sickness unto death or this sin unto death? I believe he's speaking about physical death in this frame. I really do. We, which believers have and can experience, Acts 5, 1 through 10, verses there we have in an and Sapphira. They died. Because lying to the Holy Spirit died on the spot. First Corinthians eleven twenty nine through thirty. Some believers, Corinthian believers, were weak, sickly, and many had died. Why? Profaning the Lord's supper. So we have a witness of Scripture that you can sin. A believer can sin unto physical death. And I believe they were. Those are talking about Christians there. And as in Sapphira, listen, you wouldn't go join a local church at that day and time unless you meant business, because the persecution was horrifically intense against this budding church group following this Galilean carpenter. And personally, and I'm very sincere in this, I believe I have witnessed some examples of that. And other pastors have shared their experiences with it too. Now go back to the middle phrase of verse 16. We'll, we'll wrap it up here. He shall give life for them that sin not unto death. Now, without going in detail, because of the time limitation here, about that term, give him life, and who gives it. And that's an important thing, and hopefully next week, Lord willing, we'll address that. This verse assures us of the, gives us the same assurance of success in our intercessory prayer that we have in our personal prayer petitions, Right? Pray, if he's not sending a sinner to death, he'll give him life. Now, we're not going to address who gives and what, all that, until next week. James 1, 15, 5, 15, 16 says, admonishes us to pray for one another and assures us the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, woman, man, woman, boy, or girl, 
availeth much. We can be very effective in our prayer life for our siblings in Jesus. We can be as effective for them, with an audience before God, as the same, just the same as we can for ourselves. We're a family of believers here. We're sharing our lives together, sharing our journey together in Jesus along the way. And there's nothing more important that we can do than praying for each other. That's the most important thing we can do is to pray for each other. Okay? May God give us grace to do that. I've said it before. You'll hear me say it again. No church ever rises above its knee level. Not even talking about sea level, knee level. No church or its ministries ever rises above its prayer life and effective ministry. So in closing, in the next few weeks, we will unveil a prayer program that hopefully you will like and adopt and we can share together. It'll be a very good way for us to pray for each other individually, for others that the Lord might bring of his choosing to our fellowship, and then for our overall church ministry together. Father, what a wonderful thing it is to know that we can come before your throne of grace to find help in time of need, but also, Lord, just to come before your throne of grace to have fellowship with you, to talk with you, to worship. Lord, thank you that we can do it individually. Thank you we can do it together. Thank you, Lord, we can do it for each other. And Lord, uh, I guess everybody wants to be known for something. Every church wants to be known for something, I guess. Maybe, I don't know. But if we're going to be known for anything around here, I pray, Father, it'd be this, that we'd be known as your children that are prayer warriors, that we pray. We'd be known as those that pray. God, help us to that end, to your pleasure. In Jesus' mighty name.